the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Flynn, and you can sit back and relax. Or if you've got, if you're listening while you're driving, keep both hands on the wheel and pay attention. Check the rearview mirror every 10 seconds. In this half hour of the show, we will have a really special guest. Her name, Miriam Ruckel Feldman, has written a book called God Said What? It's My Orthodox Life and uh, her story. Uh, quite interesting, quite fascinating, actually. The portion of the week which will be discussed in the second half of the show is the portion of Shlach, can be found in the book of Numbers. So it's mostly about the spies, and we'll talk something about that. There's a dynamic story all the way at the end of the story. This is, this is one of those, like, you got to put your seatbelt on stories. Wonderful. I mean, really good music this week. And uh, before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. <laughs> An Egyptian policeman snuck across the Israeli border and killed two IDF soldiers. The terrorist then killed another soldier and wounded one more during the search for him. The terrorist was shot and killed. A joint investigation is ongoing as Israel and Egypt have been at peace since 1979. Israel is cracking down on gang violence in Israeli Arab towns. Thirteen people were arrested following a rash of drive-by shootings that killed six people in Nazareth in northern Israel. The New York City Police Department has reported 100 anti-Jewish hate crimes in the city since the start of the year, a decrease of 20% from last year. The European Union will partner with Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial, in a new wing of the museum which will highlight European Jewry prior to World War II. Here's an interesting thing. 
Archaeologists discovered flutes over 5,000 years old in the Hula Valley that imitate bird calls. That's really pretty cool. I wonder who was the first one to put their mouth to it to see what this thing sounds like. Israel, in the sport, Israel made it to the semifinals by shocking powerhouse Brazil in the under-20 World Cup soccer in Argentina. Israel's Cinderella story came to an end in the semifinals, losing to Uruguay 1-0. It's not bad. And a little bit of weather over there. Everybody's worried about the weather over here. Heavy thunderstorms struck parts of Israel this week. It is highly unusual for a terrain in Israel during the summer. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Let's start up a little music. This is Avram Fried, Chaim Israel, and Bensi Stein. The song is called Al Tipol. Don't be afraid.
Assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Hey, Shulfin, you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Miriam Rachel Feldman has written a book, God Said What? Or maybe it's God Said What? I don't know. Anyway, how are you, uh, Miriam Rachel? Good. Thank God. Yes, and it is It is God Said What? Are you kidding me? Yeah, okay. that could have been the full title. <laughs> okay, so this is, this, this is your story, and um, your story about how you got involved with religiosity, and... Everybody who got involved with becoming religious has a story. I have a story. My wife has a story. We have people get brought in over here. They have their stories. What, what did you, what, why was it or how was it that you felt that your study was deservant of, of a book, Mary Ruchel? So um, I guess because of the when when a lot of people um, become more you know religious or look towards Judaism to you know start observing more or even studying it more, um, they do it because they feel compelled. Something's pulling them, or they meet someone. And for me, it was a little bit of a like a shocker because it was like cold water being splashed in my face because of um, you know my my boyfriend or college boyfriend had gotten into it in Israel and sent me a letter. And I actually thought he was in a cult. So in that way, I think my story is a little different than some other people's because I was trying to rescue him, trying to get him out. There was a lot of fear on my part because it was so different than what I understood. And so I felt just compelled to write that story because there are so many twists and turns and, and it fascinated people when I would share it with them. So I thought, okay, let's put it into a book. And, you know, I have other reasons for putting it into a book, but that was why I thought it was a good story to tell. Mm-hmm. Now, this story takes place in the early 80s or so, and we're now in the early 2020s. What took you so long? <laughs> what took me so long? Uh, good question. I guess I was raising my family. I was um, doing my healing practice. And I don't know, I guess it was just, you know, when Hashem puts something in your mind, um, and it just seems like the right timing. I had written a short article in, in the Nishay newsletter, 
and, you know, people enjoyed it. And so, again, it just felt compelling. I was writing articles, but more like healing articles. And I thought, okay, let me just go for this. I think, uh, I think it's a good story. Again, it's, there's like a romantic piece to it, so it's interesting. I wanted to uh, create it for people of any background, any faith, and I just felt I could do it at that time in that moment. And it took eight years to do, so it wasn't a quick journey at all. I you know, never written a book. That's a whole different thing, but it just, again, that I think we feel compelled that this story can be told now. Okay, so your story, your, your, the title, God Said What?, and the fact that you, you just told us that you're pursuing a boyfriend who you thought was in a cult. So I kind of guess that the, the title came up with things that your, your former boyfriend were saying to you that were sort of like, huh? That yeah. type of thing? Yeah. Yeah, that type of thing. But it was also, it wasn't, yeah, it was what he was saying. And then it was what, when I went to rescue him in Israel, what I was being exposed to there, the learning there. And it was just, it was like one shocker after another because, again, I was living in Berkeley at the time. I was kind of a hippie. I had um, gone to school in Grinnell, Iowa at the college there, and that was very liberal. And so spirituality was something I wasn't even really that interested in, but it certainly didn't look like what traditional or orthodox Judaism was sharing. And it was literally like, what kind of God is this? What are you guys talking about? And what are you doing? And no, I don't want to do it. And and trying to get him out of it, too. I mean, there is there is actually a lot of that in Judaism. I'm dealing with several people who are converts. They're in the process of converting. Mm-hmm. And I handed them a code of Jewish law. And the first thing they asked me, uh, every one of them asked me, I, I have to be careful how I tie my shoes. Really? I mean, so, and I tell them, if it's in the code of Jewish law, God cares. Don't ask me. I don't know why or how God cares about how you tie your shoes, but I had the same question 40-something years ago when I became religious. So, but you didn't get turned off by the 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 what's and the, the head scratchers in Judaism. What what was it that uh, led you to pursue more, Miriam Rachel? Yeah, so I, I feel for me that I, I really did get turned off a lot when I was learning in Israel and even when I came back to the States. But I feel like, you know, God put a carrot on the stick. So the carrot was this boyfriend. And there's a, you know, there's something in the book where, you know, my, um, uh, you know, that my boyfriend's father comes to also rescue him and get him out and uh, winds up kind of, you know, being being inspired by it and thinking it's great and then he turns to me well if you want to marry him then you're going to need to do this stuff and so that's really what kept leading me forward for a long time was that the carrot on the stick oh i could get my boyfriend if if i believe this stuff and then i think that there were pieces that were starting to make sense as i kept learning and so that was that was kind of what was inspiring me, even though part of me was kicking and screaming during a lot of it, you know, just kind of halfway rejecting it, halfway embracing it. It was a tough journey. Indeed, as it is, as always, if you're just joining us, our guest today is Miriam Rachel Feldman, has written a book called God Said What? My Orthodox Life, or hashtag My Orthodox Life. A story about how she got involved with all this, and there's lots of twists and turns and other things in it. It's not just 
her story because just her story would be probably about half the half the book, and it's it's a pretty decent sized book. Thank you. So, I mean, just to, to you know, what, is, what it's like for people that don't know about parents and the relationships. So at one point, I have, I'm a family of seven siblings. My oldest brother is, mm. a, my oldest brother is a Buddhist. My second brother was into Shinto macrobiotics. My third brother was into Shlomo Karlbach. My fourth brother was a junkie, but thank God, after so many years, got out of it and got into some sort of uh, uh, health coach. My other sister was involved with a nefarious Christian cult, but got out of that and married a dentist. And my younger sister was a punk rocker. So my wow. my mother, at one point, <laughs> my mother, who had to put up with all this, said to me at one point, she said, Herschel, of all the Mishugas, of all the craziness that your siblings are involved with, I like your craziness the best. So... Um, it was still in her mind, it was still crazy. And it's just like, we're looked at by our parents and, and why, why would it be? So what, what was it that, that, uh, finally pushed you, Miriam Rachel? That finally pushed me and, and just embracing becoming Orthodox. Yeah. So what finally pushed me was that, um, I had learned enough that it made more sense. It was kind of like my eyes were opening more to a different perspective. And it's truly a paradigm shift. Like it's a paradigm shift. If, cause as I was, even when I was in Israel and learning about even the separation between men and women and everything like that, coming at it with a certain kind of eye, it, it can look terrible. It can look really like oppressive and suppressive. But when I, chose a different paradigm and looked at it as like, okay, this, this is a completely different thing. Like I have to look at it from a completely different perspective. And then you put it all together as kind of like an integrated whole. And that perhaps maybe God really did, you know, write the Torah, give us the Torah. Then that's when I think things changed for me. And I needed to take a leap of faith and stop fighting you know, does this make sense? This doesn't make sense. The world's going to think I'm crazy. And then when I kind of took that leap and I just said, I'm in, I'm in. And this is what I believe. This is the paradigm shift I've made. And then like, it just eyes open again to that different perspective. And so that's what I try to do in the book as well, is bring people along my journey as a 23 year old being exposed to all this newness that sounded so strange and so different than the world I was raised in. And yet this is what changed for me. And this is how I started to understand it. And so from like the inside out for people to have that perspective, because also from what I learned from reading your biography, you had said that you were kind of raised Orthodox or traditional. So there was strong Jewish values there, but look at where, but there your siblings went in all different directions and even you started to because something didn't inspire you or didn't make sense to you. And so through the book, I hope to, you know, bring to non-Jews and to Jewish people of any background, like this is Orthodox Judaism. This is from our ancestors. Okay. Now, just to, to clarify, when I write my biography on my website, RabbiFinman.com, that I was raised in a traditional Jewish home which sounds really mm-hmm. impressive, but traditional meant and whatever we did had to be done in an Orthodox Jewish environment or setting. 
we just didn't do anything. So uh-huh. my mother didn't keep a kosher house, but we were not allowed to have margarine on the table if she was serving meat because it looked like milk and meat. It didn't make any sense to me because, Mom, the meat's not kosher, right. and it's not even milk. <laughs> it's margarine. <laughs> right. It's margarine. That's confusing. <laughs> yes. So you can understand why it is that my sibs went in seven different uh, yeah, directions. diametrically opposed directions. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, our guest again is, is Miriam Rachel Feldman. written a book called God's said what hashtag my orthodox life so bring us up to um your your uh, your time in, in in crown heights in brooklyn in machon which is a uh, school for girl for women who are just starting out their education so what what got you to go to, to crown heights and to put yourself you were raised in like if you said you were a hippie the last place you would wind up is brooklyn in the 1980s right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I was actually born in Muncie, uh, which is now a very religious area and was a a Jewish Orthodox religious area when I was there. My parents, who didn't, you know, my mother's mother, like Shabbos candles and everything else, but she still wasn't raised, you know, that traditional. And my father was against religion in any form. And so when they saw religious people moving into their neighborhood, that's when they picked up and they moved only 10 minutes down the road to Pomona, which is completely um, Jewish religious now, which is kind of funny. Um, they, you know, they kind of embrace people as friends now. So that wasn't a problem later on in life. Um, but so I was familiar with New York and Brooklyn, even though I had spread my wings, my wings and had, you know, went to all different parts of the world, including Germany, because I was quite fascinated with the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. So then I went like the hippie way, but I made my way to Crown Heights because, again, that carrot on the stick, um, you know, I could, you know, if I really believed in this Orthodox Judaism, I could marry this man who I felt such a heart connection to, and I would, when I was in, I had left Israel at a certain point and then gone to, uh, back to Berkeley where I'd lived before. Um, and then, you know, just being part of the, the Orthodox community there in terms of just learning and sometimes spending Shabbos. They, someone had mentioned to me Beis Khan in Minnesota with Rabbi Friedman. And so I went there to learn. And then uh, the natural progression of that, because that was only for the summer was to go to Brooklyn and Crown Heights and to immerse myself with the learning because just learning on the side wasn't, wasn't really answering the questions that I needed. So I immersed myself in, in Brooklyn, and I was there during the height of a very exciting time. Yeah, very fascinating. Okay, just to do some on-air Jewish geography to let you know. Um, you were in Berkeley, and the Chabad rabbi at that time was Yehuda Ferris, correct? Yes, and I, they're still there. And they're, mm-hmm. and they're still there. Um, I went yes. to junior. I went to junior high with Miriam Ferris, Mrs. Ferris. Oh, uh, that's yeah, so nice yeah. We were, we were actually both. We were brought found. We both found Judaism through the same Rabbi Schoenberg Gordon of blessed memory, who was. Wow. Where we, Where was that? Was, Maple was that Maple Maplewood, New Jersey, suburban. Oh, Newark. Maplewood, New Jersey. Yes, okay. 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 Anyway. Wow, in Newark. Yeah, yes. I've been in touch with Miriam a little bit because. Um, I had reached out to her and asked, like, what were the, you know, you know, I showed her some of the passages from the book and just said, would, you know, can I use your name, whatever it was. So, um, 
Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sure, I'm sure it, they, it all comes together sometimes, yeah. you know. I'm sure the 40,000 people that are listening to this are actually fascinated by this current conversation. But anyway, <laughs> okay, so now you've written this book about your story and about how you became involved with Orthodox Judaism, and you're presenting it as a book for the greater Jewish world. You didn't go to Art Scroll or or um, Koran Press to get it published. You went to Harmony Press, which is a regular mainstream press, and they actually picked it up. So they thought that, and the reason why they picked it up is because they thought they can sell copies of it. And if they were counting on copies being sold to the Jewish community, they were not going to make a profit from this book. So what did you do to impress the publishers that this book is good for the general public, and thus by answering all the Joe, Joe Q publics that are listening to this program right now, we'll get an idea why they should run out and, and go buy God Said What. Well, actually, Harmony Press is me. I self-published oh, okay. it. Because what happened was, what happened was, was that, again, I wrote this book over eight years' time, and I wanted it for the masses. I wanted it for anyone of any faith, any background. And thank God it really is, um, you know, I get readers from Scotland, from India, from, you know, they're, whether they're Hindu, whether they're Christian, it doesn't matter. And uh, they just, it speaks to them because I wrote it in such a way that um, it's kind of like just sharing with people who are going in one direction. This is what's going on behind the scenes. We can all work together in our different roles and bring the, you know, the world to a place of peace. So what I did was I didn't go to Jewish publishers. I went to non-Jewish publishers and non-Jewish um, a- agents. And, you know, I kept writing those letters and each one wanted something different. And it's more popular today to leave religion. Those are the things that get on Netflix than to come into religion. So when I saw that it wasn't getting picked up by a publisher or an agent, and I knew that that this book needed to be published. That's when I did it myself. Uh-huh. Okay, understood. So, w- would you like to see? And this is, this is I'm asking the question sort of backwards, so that you, you can answer it forward. Is this person in Scotland who picks up your book? Do you want that person to become, and when you're writing this book, that you want them to become an Orthodox Jew? No, that's not. That was never my goal. And just like I, you know, I kind of. Uh, follow in the spiritual footsteps of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was just just teach. If you know Aleph, which is the first letter of the um, of the Hebrew alphabet, just teach Aleph. So for me, it was just this is my story, you know, and I wanted it to be humorous and fun as well, not serious and dark. Even though it was a difficult journey, I I brought lightness to it, um, so people would laugh and they would enjoy it. Um, and just like the Rebbe says, I, I know Aleph, so I'll teach Aleph. So I'm just sharing and teaching what I know and knowing that people can gain whatever they gain from the book. But uh-huh. no, it's not meant for, to con- you know, make this person this or that or anything like that. It's to share my story and whatever resonates, resonates with people, whatever they can gain from it, that's fantastic. Uh-huh. When you were living in, in Crown Heights and afterwards, um, did you develop a relationship with the Lubavitcher Rebbe? You mentioned it before. Yeah, I would. I would go on the Sunday dollar lines. Um, 
And so I would receive a dollar and any booklets that the Rebbe was giving out. So that I did, and I loved the teachings. I was so fortunate to go to Machon Chana with Rabbi Majeski and some of the other wonderful teachers as well, because the Rebbe spoke in Yiddish, but then we'd come to school the next day, like on Sunday, and we, we would be taught what the Rebbe said in English. So that was, um, that was wonderful. Plus, when I have, as parts of my story, I was directly writing to the Rebbe and getting uh, answers that were leading me in direction in my life. And yeah, so that, that was my relationship with the Rebbe. Um, the teachings, the inspiration, who the Rebbe is, how the Rebbe treated people, and the broader focus, what, what the Rebbe has in mind for the world and to bring that hope to people. Okay, one one last question for you, uh, Miriam Rachel Veldman. Um, mm-hmm. You you started this whole journey because you wanted to because of a boyfriend that you wanted to get out of a cult and somehow wound up being involved in the same non cult that he was. But what happened to your boyfriend? Yeah, so people need to read the book to figure that out. <laughs> That's the there's a surprise at the end. So it's best for people to read it and uh, take the journey themselves within the book. Okay, wonderful. Our guest today has been Miriam Rachel Feldman, has written a really wonderful book, Two Thumbs Up, God Said What? Hashtag My Orthodox Life, and it's available on Amazon, wherever you get your Jewish books from. I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time and sharing your sharing your uh, your life and part of your story with us, Miriam Rachel. Great. Thank you so much, Rabbi Finman, for the opportunity. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. It's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Schultzman, here you are listening to The Jewish Hour. Again, it's very inspiring, and I do recommend you go get God Said What? by Miriam Rachel Feldman. And the word Miriam Rachel says Merrill because that's her professional name. She's a health coach and stuff like that in Chicago and does stuff. Um, I guess I didn't go into this, what she's doing now, but I'm assuming it's over the phone and online via Skype, etc. So you can contact her to all the various websites if you Google Miriam Rachel. Rachel is spelled R-A-C-Q-U-E-L. Feldman and or just God said what and that's how I got in touch with when I saw the, the the title God said what we have up for your this is this is a really cool song I like this song I played last played this song okay I went looking through my playlists I last played this song in 2016 so I figured it's time I played it again but he says and usually I play there's lots of songs I've only played once and the fact I'm playing it, but this is a classic. This is a remake of a Nathan Glantz orchestra song, first recorded in 1926. This is the Peter Sokolov and the original Klezmer Jazz Band. The song is called The Yiddish Charleston.
And that was the Peter Sokolov original klezmer jazz band. Yiddish Charleston is the name of the song. That's a mouthful. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Up next, this is brand new. This song is dedicated to a small girl, 12 years old, who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, her name was Hadassah Lubavik, and uh, the song is done by Eighth Day and Nissan Black. The song is called Live a Little Louder. When my head is feeling heavy and my steps are out of sync, when my feet can't find their rhythm and I don't know what to think, simple words have lost their meaning. And my broken heart can't be It's in these silent moments I feel you next to me Saying, face the challenge, steer it down Take the plunge, feet off the ground Breathing deep till again your head's above water No anchor can hold you down Say it with me now again Live your one life, mit Dabrin. Traveling in the breeze from children as they play. The harmonies that fall between the notes we cannot hear. The sound of life surrounding you, a size that he Goodwill God heals Every type of suffering That's how I fell in love with him Seen a lot of pain in life I am still recovering I'm giving all I have to give I finish when there's nothing left I live life with the fire burning in my chest I'm drawing down the light a little Make it louder, we progress True joy is revealed or concealed in the actions you're making You should learn patience Live life every day with a smile and good energy Because it's the way to victory Face the challenge, steer it down Take the plunge, feet off the ground Breathing deep till again your head's above water No anchor can hold you down Say with me now again Live your one life, McDowell When you're silent
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week, we'll be reading in the synagogue the portion of Shlach. And we can make all kinds of jokes about the name, but we're not going to. It's Numbers chapter 13 and following. The primary story of the portion, which takes up uh, four-fifths of the portion, is uh, actually it's about more like four-sevenths. But anyway, is the story with the spies. And they went to Israel. They came back with a bad report. And as a, as a result of their bad report, the Jews had to wander in the desert for 40 years. Let's focus on that. It's presented as... A punishment. The Jews had to wander in the desert for 40 years. We don't like it. The word actually is wander. But when you look at the wandering, which are described in the portion of Masai at the end of the book of Numbers, you'll see that there are 42 different journeys that the Jews took. So they weren't exactly wandering. That's an average of one a year. And they spent <laughs> they spent 19 years, half of the time, um, actually, let's back up a little bit. The first year, they weren't wandering. They were at Sinai. The last year, they weren't wandering. They're on their way to Israel. So it's not 40 years. It's actually 38 years. 19 years, half of the 38 years, they spent in Kaddish Barnea, which is one place, located quite, kind of sort of near where the Rafia Junction is now, like really close to Israel, but just like not close enough to get in. So they didn't do a lot of wandering, as they say. And that we discussed about last week. So it wasn't as it is as a punishment. They were they didn't they weren't just like following the sheep. No. The spies wanted Moshe to stay alive. Everybody knew that Moshe was was not going to be taking the Jewish people into Israel. It was sort of like a known thing, and that came comes up at the end of the portion. They wanted to stay in the desert, and they wanted to stay. Desert's a cool place. I mean, you know, you got really quite cool. They had the clouds, you know, with all the, the protection and crowd control and the laundry service and tailoring and, and GPS and, and et cetera, et cetera, that the cloud provided. And they had manna from heaven. They had water from the, from the well that traveled with them. They had no physical worries. And if Moshe is going to take them into Israel, if they're going to go into Israel, then they're going to have to get dirt under their fingers if they want to eat. So they said, we don't want to do that. So God said, you're not going to do that. You're going to, you're going to die in the desert. So they got what they wanted. Okay, so why is it presented that way then? Because 
or, or let's back up the 40 years. The 40 years, it did accomplish a great thing. The fact that Moshe was allowed to stay alive with the Jewish people did a wonderful thing. It was Moshe, who's called the Raya Mehemna, the faithful shepherd, was enabled to was enabled the Jewish people to adhere to the tenets of the Torah without him standing over them. That's what he did. He implanted faith into the hearts of the Jewish people. That took thirty-eight years. So you could say maybe it was a setup. It would look, okay, well, you know, things are divine providence. Looking back, nothing happens that God didn't want to happen, of course. So in that instance, we always refer to the idea that anything that's, that looks bad at the surface really has more than a silver lining. It is silver. It just has like a, uh, a black overcoat around it so that... The Jews got to be with Moshe. Now, let's just flip towards the end of the portion. It discusses the dough offering, what's referred to as challah. Challah, or hali as some people would say it, challah does not refer to a twisted loaf of bread that's covered with an egg wash to make it shiny that's eaten on Friday nights. That's the colloquialism. Challah was the dough. We talked about this when we talked about... um, um, with the the author of Mind Over Batter, and I mentioned to him about challah, what the why how and challah came. And if you want to find out, just go back a couple episodes and listen to the Mind Over Batter interview, and we discussed that over there. What challah is all about? So challah was the first the first offering of the dough. A person, a woman, made uh, a trough of dough, enough dough to to make bread for, to last for a week, five pounds or more had to give a handful of the dough to the Kohen. Now, you can say a handful of dough just makes a roll. What is that going to do him? But if he, if he collected from enough people, he also got enough to eat for a whole week. It says that, so what's this doing here in this portion? This type of thing should be in the portion of the book of Leviticus, where it talks about sacrifices and offerings, etc. So it says that when God made the world... So it says everything was a big confusion. It was a big, you know, tohu vavohu was a big mishmash. And God separated things out. And the last thing that it does is describes how, in the second chapter of the book of Genesis, how God made Adam. And he says he took from the dirt from around the world and he mixed it with water and he needed it. When you need things, they become like a dough. So Adam is now, for all intents and purposes, the challah, the first dough offering, of the entire creation. If that be the case, now what do we do nowadays with our dough offering? When my wife, Hannah, she should live long and be happy and healthy and prosperous, makes challah. So she takes the handful of dough. And because we're not in Israel and the Kohanim are not ritually pure and can't eat the stuff anyway, so she takes it, she burns it, she gets rid of it. Okay, but that's just now. It has to, and why is it that it's burnt? Because it has a state even now has a state of sanctity. So we see in this portion where, we're to, where the Jews were, were made to be, stay in the desert so that they could have this faith in God implanted into them. This is the natural place where you put the story or the, the laws about the first dough. That has to mean that even something so simple, so mundane as bread, the staff of life, 
has to have that aspect of dedicated to the holy. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and we have an amazing, no commercial break. My board ops, Luke, is shaking his head, reminding me that, no, we lost a sponsor, and uh, <laughs> we don't have uh, and we don't have one. So let's just do it this way. If you'd like to get in touch with me, then you should go to my website, rabbifinman.com, and uh, you can see over there all the things that we're doing. And right on the homepage, I like it when... A website has right up front, contact me. Okay. Some of these, some, I hear about a book. So publishers are the worst. I go to a book and I see there's a book and the book is published by blank publishing company. So I'll go to their website and I'll have to go three or four pages in to find the contact information. It's just like, come on. But that's the way that it's, it's, it seems like ubiquitous with publishing houses. So, but not, not rabbifinman.com, not jewishferndale.com. Contact us right at the top. Okay. You have a question. If you have a question for me, you want it answered and we'll get to it. And if you send your answers to me, questions to me on a Sunday, usually get, you'll get an answer back like right away. And it depends if I capture you, catch me in a, in a half a second. Somebody wrote me a letter this morning and I answered. I had just a half a second. I saw what they wanted. I answered right away. So it's, uh, you know, that's the way to do it, RabbiFinman.com. There's also archive editions of the show, archive editions of other ways in which we produce, present Judaism in an interesting and exciting way, hopefully. And there's also the very important donations page. The Jewish Hour has been on air now for 29 years. Next March will be our 30th anniversary. We'll see if maybe we can get another article in the Jewish news. We had one at 18. We had one at 25. Maybe it's time for another one at uh, 30. We'll see. The Jewish news has changed. The Jewish hour has changed. The world has changed. Mashiach will be here by then for sure, 100%. But right now, we need to pay the bills. Okay? We are, uh, we owe for May, and we owe for June, and uh, I'm not worried because we've been doing this for 29 years. It slowly comes in, little dribs, little drabs, a $10 here, a $25 there, an occasional $100, et cetera. Then there's some of the big ones come in. We, so whatever it is that you feel that you'd like to contribute to this show, you've been listening already for close to 50 minutes already. So you've enjoyed it. And you probably, this is, maybe this is not your first time. So you've enjoyed this show before. And if it's, this is your first time, I hope it's not your last time. And you'll tune in further or maybe scroll back through the many archived editions of the Jewish Hour because we try to present a really classy radio program. It's for your benefit because I would like it such, I hate time wasters. And I would like it to see that when you get done listening to the Jewish Hour, you feel that you've accomplished something. You feel that you're a better person. You feel that the world is a better place, maybe. Or you've got some insight into how to make the world a better place. That's what we're trying to do here. And we got to pay to play. Um, nothing's for my mother used to always say there's no such thing as a free lunch. So um, I guess. Uh, I can, I, I'm not supposed I'm going to do any better than NPR that they said. They, I was listening to NPR this week, and they said that only 7% of listeners of NPR contribute. And they're managing pretty good at 7%. I'm, I'm a little less than that. So let's 
boost that up. At least we should be equal to NPR. So go to RabbiFinman.com, click on the donations page, choose a number that you like, take a number there that there's an other. If you don't like any of those numbers, that's fine. There are an infinite number of numbers. You can choose any one you want. Just make it in the above zero. And if you want, you can make it a monthly donation. That's really easy. You just click on the top, monthly donations, and it all gets done. It takes you three minutes uh, to set up. And then you don't have to think about it again until your credit card expires. So do that and keep quality radio programming alive and well. The story involves Reb Shlomo. That's all we know his name is Reb Shlomo. And Reb Shlomo was a disciple, a chosid of the Baal Shem Tov lived in Mezhebush, which is many miles east of Gross Point Farms. This Shlomo was a wealthy business magnate. Shipping, it wasn't just, you know, buy retail, buy wholesale, sell retail. This guy had ships and lumber contracts, and uh, he was doing very well. Big philanthropist. He didn't have any kids. And he went continuously to the Baal Shem Tov, please, Rebbe, we want a bracha for having children. The Baal Shem Tov always kind of skirted the issues. One time, he came to the Baal Shem Tov, and the Baal Shem Tov said, we have to make an exchange. You could either be wealthy, or you could have kids, but you can't have both. If you'll give up your wealth, within a year you'll have a child. He said, I'll do it. I said, no, no, not so fast. Go home. Ask your wife. She's prepared to live in poverty. It's a big change from living like, you know, uh, with a proper double chin with one staircase going up and one staircase going down. Go back and ask. So he went and told his wife with the Baal Shem Tov. She said, she said, gladly for a child? Absolutely, 100%. Shows you how, you know. The, what, what really counts, you can't take money with you, you know. So goes back and he tells the Baal Shem Tov, we would rather have children. So on his way home, he stops off at an inn, which is the way people travel. They have to travel a couple of days. You have to sleep someplace. So there were these inns along the way. There were Jewish ones and non-Jewish ones. So he said, he said, which city are you going to? He says, I'm going to City X. He said, did you hear about Shlomo? He said, no, what? It said... His, he had a fleet of ships that was carrying cargo, and it was storm got them all lost at sea. And he said, oh, that's terrible. And he's thinking to himself, yes, the bracha's already starting to take place. And uh, his, his logging concerns caught on fire, and slowly he lost everything. But he was very, the two of them were very happy because they knew they were going to have a kid soon. And he was relegated to wandering and begging. Within a year, they had a son. And he was very, very happy. But he still had to go around begging. He teamed up with a bunch of beggars, and the beggars were found themselves in the city of Mezhibuz, and he suggested that they go visit the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was a very philanthropic people, people. Man, people came to him and gave him money for distribution of poor, and they were poor, so they should go to the Baal Shem Tov. So they lined up, and they all got donations from the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov recognized Shlomo and said, come back afterwards. 
So the Baal Shem Tov welcomed him into his study and said, uh, so what's happening with your life now? And he explained that he had lost everything and they had a brief Baruch Hashem. They had the, the Rebbe's blessing came true. They had a baby, a beautiful baby boy. And he's been uh, relegated to wandering around in abject poverty, collecting alms. So the Rebbe told him, the Baal Shem Tov said to him, it's, it's too much. It's, it's, they took away too much. Said, go to Crimea. Everybody now knows about Crimea now. And in the such and such a city. And just go there. Okay? And things will work out for you. Fine. So he picks himself up from Mezhabush, which is located, I believe, in southeast Ukraine. But, uh, so it wasn't, I guess, not a great distance, but it was enough of a distance. There's no trains yet to walk. Shows up in this village and uh, pulls into shul right before Shabbos. And someone says, okay, you go to this guy. Okay, this is what happened. Because if it were come, they would be assigned guests because otherwise people would fight over guests. I know what that's like. If somebody comes into shul, will you come to me to eat? Will you come to my house to eat? Will you come? No. So in this synagogue, they assign people. It's your turn to have a guest. Here, you take this guest. So we don't know the name of the, the host. So the host was a, a pretty wealthy person himself and treated Shlomo with the utmost respect and dignity and gave him such a wonderful Shabbos. And then as soon as the Shabbos was over, this host became very morose and downtrod, downcast, really just like. So Shlomo said, what's the problem? He said, my, my daughter is very unhealthy. She has this problem and this problem, and she, she uh, has fits of hysteria and screams at nothing. So he said, you should come to the Baal Shem, come to the Mezhibuz, we'll go to the Baal Shem, and uh, he'll, he'll heal the problem. He'll be able to. guy said, really? He said, yeah, he's done such, like, there's all kinds of stories. So they traveled from the Crimea to Mezhibuz, and the man presented his story. So the Baal Shem Tov said, I will go to your city. And he called for a disciple whose name was Chaim Sofer. He was the Baal Shem Tov's uh, scribe. He wrote mezuzahs and things like that. And maybe, yeah, because there was no, he wasn't writing down what the Baal Shem Tov said. That didn't exist. They traveled back and immediately the Baal Shem Tov told the scribe, go to the mikveh and say, just yell. When you're in the mikvah, this is a ritual bath where women go to. The Baal Shem Tov says, leave. So he yelled. The Baal Shem Tov said, yell, said, leave. So he hears a voice coming from the mikvah, from the pool. The Baal Shem Tov doesn't have jurisdiction over Crimea. Tell him to get lost. He's taken aback. What's this all about? So he went back to the Baal Shem Tov and told him. The Baal Shem Tov said, take my walking stick. If he answers in such impertinent way again, take my stick and smack the water. So he took his stick and he smacked the water. The water turned blood red. The Baal Shem Tov said, drain this, the mikveh, clean it up, refill it. The daughter got better. Then the Baal Shem Tov asked, here's a little twist. How is it that you became so, he asked this, this man with the daughter, how is it that you became so wealthy? And he said, well, it once happened after the end of a storm that these ships blew into onto my dock. So he said, you should know this man who brought you to me was the owner of those ships. And it's true 
that the law says you can keep them, but you should give him a piece of the action. And that's what he did, and everybody lived happily ever after in comfort, and Shlomo had children and grandchildren. That's going to do it. We hope you had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.